Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Nate, and this is Timeline Tapes, the podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. Here we take the documentaries and TV shows from our channel and turn them into podcasts that you can listen to wherever you are. This week, we're bringing you part one of one of our favorite documentaries called Vespasian, The Path to Power. It looks at the life of perhaps the most liked but least documented Roman emperor, Vespasian, who transitioned a weakened empire into a period of stability and growth. The voice of the show is Alan Armstrong, who will be joined by a wide variety of historians and experts of the Roman Empire. By the middle of the first century AD, Roman civilization had spread to engulf the whole of the Mediterranean and beyond. It was the greatest empire the world had ever seen, and it seemed unshakable, but it wasn't. In AD 69, the Roman Empire foundered and very nearly fell. It was the year of four emperors, and Rome's dark side came to the fore as ambition turned to rivalry, rivalry to murder and civil war. From the chaos, an unlikely hero emerged to pull Rome back from the abyss. A simple man known to his friends as the Mule Breeder, known to the Senate as Titus Flavius Vespasianus, and to history as Vespasian, the Empire's savior. The year is AD 68. The legions of Spain and France under the command of Sulpicius Galba are marching on Rome. Between them and the capital is the army of the Rhine, loyal to the emperor. This is Rome versus Rome. At stake was the throne of the young emperor Nero, debauched, dissolute, murderous, a descendant of the emperor Augustus. For a hundred years, his family had ruled Rome. Now Nero had bankrupted it. It was time for ambitious men to make their move. Nero consulted the Delphic Oracle, asking how long he might expect to live. The reply, cryptic, ironic as ever, was, beware the age of 73. Being 31, Nero rejoiced that he had 42 years to live. Meanwhile, the governor of Spain, Sulpicius Galba, was drilling his soldiers to march on Rome. Galba's age was 73. In June that year, Galba unleashed his forces against Rome. It was a domino effect. Mutiny in Spain, in Gaul, and on the Rhine, each bringing the end a step closer. Then someone bribed the Praetorian Guard and they deserted. 
emboldening the Senate to declare Nero deposed and under sentence of death. Abandoned by all except a few servants, Nero hid in a humble house on the edge of Rome, and there he stabbed himself in the throat. The Julio-Claudian dynasty, which had ruled for 95 years, was now extinct, and the world held its breath. Galba was still in Spain when on the 8th of June he was proclaimed emperor. It was the first time an emperor had been created outside of Rome. Powerful men paid attention. At the opposite end of the empire, in Judea, the commander Vespasian was involved in a bitter war when he heard of the successful coup. With a practiced instinct for his own survival, he dispatched his eldest son, Titus, to swear allegiance to the new emperor. It would prove a wasted journey. It's difficult now to recapture the uncertainty of the world. If you think of the Roman Empire from one end to the other as being two months wide in summer, three months wide in winter, that's the amount of time that it takes for messages to go in one direction even, sometimes to go there and back. And they can never be complete information, so people are marching in the dark. In Rome, events were unfolding faster than Titus could travel. Titus is sent off to offer congratulations to Galba. And in fact, Titus never gets to Rome because before he gets there, Galba is murdered and uh, he goes back again. But um, this is when people, people begin to think anything could happen. In his grab for power, Galba had not only split the army, he had divided Rome. Never a safe place, the dark recesses of the Forum were now more perilous than the battlefield. Rome's armies had followed the eagles on many a front. And yet, most dangerous of all was the inner front, the home front, where plots were hatched and scores were settled, where soldiers meddled in politics, where the Praetorian Guard, the spoilt brats of the Roman army, traded their support for gold. Within months of his arrival in Rome, Galba was dead, murdered by his Praetorian guards. They had switched their allegiance to Salvius Otho, a friend and some say lover of the late Nero. Otho proclaimed himself emperor on the 15th of January. He also would last but a few months. The storm clouds of civil war had finally broken. The bloody clash that ensued brought thugs and mercenaries from all the dark corners of the empire. The victor this time was the despised Aulus Vitellius. His ragtag army brought chaos to the very heart of the empire. Vitellius had arrived from Germany, dragging along with his army a vast mob of hangers-on. He turned the whole city into a camp and filled every house with armed men. Unused to the sight of Roman wealth, they could hardly restrain their covetous desires, but turned to plunder and the murder of any who got in their way. Vespasian, having crushed all opposition in the neighborhood of Jerusalem, went back to Caesarea. There, he heard of the upheavals in Rome and the news angered him. The empire Vespasian had served all his life was in meltdown. Now was the time to act. He enlisted the support of legions to the north and to the south. They proclaimed him emperor, and he ordered them to march on Rome. On the 20th of December, 69 AD, they entered the capital in triumph. Vitellius, already on the run, was hunted down and slaughtered. His corpse dragged through the forum and hurled into the Tiber. The year of four emperors was over. 
and it was Rome's luck that the fourth proved to be Roman to the core. Someone said to Nero, you can kill everyone, Caesar, except your successor. The great question was, who would be Nero's successor? Few dreamt that before a year was out, the laurel crown would adorn the brow of a mule breeder, even less that this country bumpkin would pull Rome back from the brink and restore the world to sanity. Vespasian inherited an empire that was on the point of collapse. Her people were in a state of shock, her armies fragmented and demoralized. The empire that was the dream of Augustus had become a nightmare in the hands of his successors. But this was never meant to be. Something had gone wrong. There are many misconceptions about Rome, and a very popular one is that it was ruled by a series of sadistic lunatics. Now that is a gross distortion. This was the greatest empire the world has ever seen, and it flourished for well over six centuries. To do this, it needed men of outstanding caliber. Vespasian may not be a household name, but he encapsulated, more than any other, the true virtues of a Roman emperor. His path to power is an astonishing story. No one could have been more astonished than Vespasian. Emperors were born, not made. So how could this ordinary man qualify for such a lofty perch? The answer can be found by retracing his career, a life's journey that took him to all of the corners of the Roman Empire. Vespasian never dreamed he would become emperor, less that he would be called upon to save the empire. In a heroic age, he was an unlikely hero. Short and thick-set, bald, with a residue of coarse and crinkly hair, shrewd eyes brightened by a twinkle, hooked nose, receding mouth, and nutcracker jaw, a face Italians of a later age would caricature as Puncinello, and the English would call punch. So, for looks, one would have to award Vespasian rather low marks for polish and social graces, zero. For imagination and innovative thinking, nothing very memorable. But for realism, for common sense, 10 out of 10, a rock-like man, steady, reliable, and Roman. Vespasian was born in 9 AD in Rieti, a quiet little town that lies in the folds of the Sabine Hills, 60 miles from Rome. For many Romans, Vespasian must have really formed the ideal Roman, a Roman from the past almost, an old-fashioned Roman from old stock from up in the mountains, a man who'd been brought up with the old Roman virtues of thoroughness, courage, magnanimity and victory, a natural soldier and a natural farmer. This sort of countryside is classic Roman army countryside where citizen soldiers are born and bred. All the country values are here of the soldier farmer. One minute tilling this land, looking after his beasts, cutting down trees, the next minute joining up to fight in the campaign and then finally retiring or returning back here afterwards. Rieti's claim to fame was, and still is, as a centre for mule breeding. Men here were the car traders of ancient Rome, the haulage contractors, and Vespasian would be known as the muleteer an association he was rather proud of. On his mother's side, he was fairly respectable, put it like that, local gentry. But his father's family was distinctly uh, peasant, 
origins. His grandfather, some people said, had been a centurion, which made it sound a bit better, but probably was only a common soldier. His dad had a job working in the tax collecting system, but not at the top level, and then went into money lending in Switzerland. So uh, you could call that being a banker, if you like, respectfully, and, and made a bit of money. Vespasian's father died when he was just 10. It was his ambitious mother who made sure he got the education and grooming that, with luck and money, might one day result in election to the Senate. Here, just off Rieti's quiet square, is her totally unexpected payoff. In time, Vespasian would go on to rebuild the Roman Empire. But first, it was the empire that would build Vespasian. Vexilatio! Vespasian's first step on the ladder to the Roman Senate was in the army. As a tribune, he would begin to see how the empire was run. But he would be far from Rome. It was a humble start, and not a cheap one. To enter a, a career as a top politician, to try and enter the Senate, you had to have friends. You had to have powerful and influential friends, and you had to have money. It was a minimum entrance requirement of a million sesterces. How much is that worth? Well, soldiers got something like um, 900 a year. So if you've got capital worth a million, that sounds a lot. His mother's wealth had bought the 18-year-old Vespasian a stake in the senatorial steeplechase. But her money guaranteed nothing except a run at the fences. At any stage, he could fall. The career hurdles were clearly marked, and progress in the hands of the Senate the emperor and the gods. Barely a handful would complete the course. The really wealthy aristocrats never see the army, because if they get military experience, they become rivals to the emperor. The relatively poor, not so well-connected, would-be politicians always get sent to the army. The Roman society is still a military society. Its strength depends upon having people at the top who can command armies, defend the frontiers. And so all young aristocrats, would-be politicians, have to have military experience. And so young Vespasian was sent out, first of all, to do military service in northern Greece, in Thrace. In Thrace, Vespasian was at one of the empire's outposts. Here, he would learn something of the precarious relationship between the army, mostly stationed out on the frontiers, and Rome itself, the seat of imperial power. The Roman Empire was, was beautifully conceived, a wonderful architecture of stability. I mean, for a hundred years there had been peace, and that's a, a fantastically difficult thing for a pre-industrial society to achieve. The reason was that the army was stretched over the, along the frontiers of the empire, along the Rhine, along the Danube in Syria, miles, months away from central Rome. And the commands of this army were split between different aristocrats. No one was allowed to stay in post for more than three years. And the people who were most skilled had to spend periods not in command, as well as periods in command. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We're about to learn more about Vespasian's first experiences in the capital of the Roman Empire at the age of 23. Vespasian was 23 before he experienced the capital for himself. He was appointed to Rome as Triumvir Capitalis, a very small cog in a complex machine that was always threatening to break down. Well, Rome was the largest city in the known world by far. Probably over a million people, perhaps even one and a half million people. It was an enormously cosmopolitan city. It had been the center of a great Mediterranean empire for over 200 years. People of every race, color, and creed would have been here hustling, dealing, looking for political favors, trading, making money. It was a poisonous cockpit of cosmopolitan and interracial strife in many ways, but it was still terribly vibrant. This was the center of the known world. If you wished to get on, you had to come here. It was also a ginormous parasitical city. It produced nothing, and therefore it had to be fed. In this huge flour mill at the mouth of the Tiber, corn, most of it imported, was ground night and day to feed Rome's constantly hungry masses. The Roman poor were given this amazing dole. They didn't have to find any food. The emperor provided that free. He also watered them or provided wine for them. They were also entertained. There's never been a society that pampered its poor to such an extent as the Romans did. This was not altruism. Rome was a powder keg. Government was about keeping the lid on it. Besides feeding everyone, there were the problems of housing and sanitation. The Romans were the first to use concrete to build huge apartment blocks. The needs of the city constantly drove forward such innovations. 
As Triumvir, Vespasian would have seen the expansion of the most spectacular of all, the vast aqueduct system marching into the heart of Rome from all directions. It was an extraordinary system. If you can imagine if you were a provincial living in a society that had hardly had any water, to see something like this striding across the countryside towards you, supplying you with non-stop water 24 hours a day. This aqueduct has been bringing water for 50 miles to this city. Now, that is an immense project. No pump system involved here. Everything is done on gravity, so the Romans have had to survey the correct height to pick up the water, then survey 50 miles of building this enormous structure. It's almost the skeleton of a great empire. The ruins of aqueducts are everywhere. The management of water was one of the technological triumphs of Rome, and one that she was able to export with spectacular results. This was hygiene, but it was more. It was recreation, a vital distraction for the city's masses along with their theaters and circuses. But all of this had to be paid for. Rome was as big as London was in 1800. It was a huge population. It maintained itself because it taxed its subjects. Why the empire was vital was because all the money it collected in taxes poured into it. A into Rome and B out to the armies on the frontier. So Rome was probably the most expensive and the army probably took somewhat less than half the total imperial budget. But the taxes that the subjects paid were absolutely fundamental to all the lavish luxury of the city of Rome. From his time in the city, Vespasian learned that in order to continue in peace and prosperity, Rome needed the empire more than the empire needed Rome. His next appointment would make that all too clear. As Quaista to Crete and Cyrene in North Africa, the young Vespasian would get a close look at how Rome collected her money. Quaista ships, there were 20, were dished out by the Senate, 10 according to status, and the rest by lottery. Vespasian, needless to say, got his by lottery. He had drawn just about the bottom job in the pecking order. I mean, there were 20 jobs going each year for quaestors. The 10 most favoured stayed in Rome. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't want to go to the provinces. And at the top of the 10 were the ones who were attached to the emperor. Or you could be attached to the consuls, or you had various other duties in Rome. The other 10 would go to the provinces. The proconsul of Crete and Cyrene, I mean, most of them are totally unknown. David, when Vespasian arrives in Cyrene as a young man of about 26 to assume the role of quaestorship, what is he letting himself in for? Well, the quaestorship's a junior position for someone who's embarking on a senatorial career, and it's to give people experience of provincial government, um, starting at the, at the sort of nuts and bolts end of how you extract money out of the provinces. Clearly, coming to, to a settled province like Cyrene from someone like Thrace is stepping from one world into another. He's coming into a well-established urban civilization based around sedentary agriculture that's already tied into Mediterranean trade and exchange networks. And as, as a tax collector's son, he must have instantly latched on to the economic potential of settled, peaceful, relatively peaceful regions like, like Cyrene and, and the potential contribution that those sort of areas could make both the economy of the empire but also to the political life and social life of the empire because these are very well-developed civilizations, been around for hundreds of years. This was not Rome. Here was evidence of civilizations that predated the Romans, Greek, Minoan, suggestions of Egypt and Carthage. 
Obviously, those extremely civilized countries. Cyrene had been first colonized by the Greeks in the 7th century BC, so they had these wonderful Greek cities. And uh, yeah, they, um, they, they were very civilized at the time when the, the Romans were, were, were very, very primitive. But now Rome had overtaken them all. Roman civilization had left the Iron Age behind and was taking the rest of the world with it. This was an empire of inclusion, not exclusion. The Cyreneans weren't Roman citizens by right. That privilege could be earned through military or public service. Roman citizenship meant you were really in the first division in ancient society. Everybody who wasn't a Roman citizen was aspiring to become a Roman citizen if they could. It was more prevalent, I might say, in the West than in the East, where the Greeks were still slightly sniffy about it. For a Roman itself, it meant that really, here you were an inheritor of the earth. There were obligations, but there were also many legal privileges that went with being a Roman citizen, and a whole way of life and a whole conduct of morals and military affairs and your political ideas and who you really thought you were. So to become a Roman was to really enter the top team. Vespasian was in the top team, and on his return to Rome, he was eligible for promotion. At the age of 26, he had seen the workings of empire at first hand, but as yet, he knew nothing of palace politics. He was about to learn. Roman aristocrats were upper-class Romans who wanted to enter politics, secure election at the age of 25 or so, and there are 20 people who make it every year. At the next rung, five years later, there are 12 to 16 posts, so a quarter to two-fifths don't make it. So there's, a, there's competition, there's chance. It's a lottery. Also, um, the emperor's mistress change, changes. A favoured ex-slave drops out of favour. And your career goes up in smoke. You have to wait till your chance comes again. Vespasian had to apply twice for his next promotion, his first application having been refused. The hurdles were becoming a bit more difficult. Between applications, the Emperor Tiberius had died. When he finally made the next rung, he may have wished he hadn't. The job he gets next is Edile, and um, among the duties of the Ediles were to keep the streets clean. And he happened to have this job during the reign of the eccentric Emperor Caligula, who, <laughs> who noticed that the streets were covered in mud and uh, heaped quantities onto, onto Vespasian. More than mud, the emperor had his guards fill Vespasian's toga with all the filth and excrement of the street. To be known to the emperor was not always good for one's career, especially when the emperor was mad. The chap who's in charge has to, has to be responsible. In the case of the emperor Caligula, obviously he noticed that the streets weren't as clean as they should be in, and blamed Vespasian. Yeah, Rome is a very lively place then, um, particularly lively in the reign of Caligula. Obviously people were petrified, basically, of what he was going to do next. This was a crash course in the unwritten rules of Roman power. The higher you rose, the more dangerous your situation became. It was during his time in Rome that Vespasian married and his son Titus was born. Little could he have realized what an asset his son would become. But in the meantime, he had acquired another asset, a patron, and from a highly improbable source. At first sight, the Roman Empire's run by an emperor, omnipotent, powerful, at the top, and aristocrats. And he uses aristocrats as the people to whom he delegates power. But aristocrats are the rivals of the emperor. They threaten him. 
So the emperors create alternative mechanisms for executing commands. Palace slaves. They free them, but they give them administrative responsibility. And these are executives of the emperor of the empire who undermine and parallel the power of senators. It's quite extraordinary from our point of view. Slaves, ex-slaves, freed slaves should exercise power which equals the power of aristocratic senators. Vespasian's patron was a slave, Narcissus, not the slave of the emperor, but of Claudius, the emperor's uncle. His influence landed Vespasian in the job of his dreams. Commander of his own legion, two Augusta, stationed in Germany. And then it got better. Caligula was murdered. Claudius was the new emperor, and at his right hand was Vespasian's patron. What's more, Vespasian was to be part of the emperor's personal ambition. Claudius, the new emperor, uh, a slobbering fool, according to some, or sly and uh, devious, you might describe him, needed military glory. And a fairly innocent expedition to Britain, Claudius could maintain himself in the background, lead from Calais, win glory, say that he'd conquered Britain and report his victory to Rome. So it was a politically dictated military adventure. For somebody like Vespasian, this was the absolute chance of a lifetime. There were only 27 legionary commanders at this stage in the Roman army, and Vespasian was one of the lucky four who was being picked for this. And this was a chance for him to show off his military talents and achieve what all Romans hankered after more than anything else, which was military glory. But there was a problem. For the army, this was a leap in the dark. Rumours of the venture caused mutiny in the ranks. A British invasion had one serious snag. Rome's redoubtable soldiers trembled at the sight of the sea. True, they had been transported across the Mediterranean on occasion. It was the ocean they feared. Not wind and wave so much as the supernatural and the spooky. The ancients saw the world as three continents surrounded by a dark and dreadful moat called Oceanus, where repulsive sea monsters, fearsome spirits, and all manner of dark dangers had their abode. The invasion was stalled on the beaches of France, but after months of persuasion and possibly bribery, the commanders were able to go ahead. As luck would have it, the Romans' hesitation had given them an unexpected advantage. The Roman delays at Boulogne persuaded the Britons that the invasion had been cancelled, and they dispersed. The Romans were able to land unopposed. The Britons had gone back to their farms. This is always the problem in that sort of a society, that if you get together a collection of people who would rather be farming their land and say, hey guys, you've got to defend the motherland or fatherland, and nothing happens for a fortnight, well, they begin to drift away. And, I mean, this only reinforces the point that they, they weren't primarily a warlike people, that if they were required to do, they could assemble, but not in, any, not in a professional way, not in any way to be a match for the Roman army. So, unopposed, the Romans headed north, the largest invasion force the country would ever see. Progress was swift and inexorable until they reached the first major river crossing. Here, they encountered signs of resistance. The Britons had been alerted. The bickering tribes united behind Caraticus, 
their best fighter. He was the son of King Sinobelinus, Shakespeare's Cymbeline, to whom Shakespeare gave the lines, Britain is a world unto itself, and we will nothing pay for wearing our own noses. But this was the Roman army, the rent collectors for an empire. They had reached the River Medway. On the northern banks, the British tribes massed to stage their defense, clearly thinking the river to be an obstacle to the Roman advance. Vespasian saw only his first chance for glory. This is a perfect battle to illustrate the flexibility of the Roman army. There's a popular misconception that the Roman army was a sort of inflexible military machine that could only really fight one type of war. That is absolutely, totally untrue. In fact, the Romans were equipped perfectly for a battle of this sort. Alongside the regular legions was a Dutch amphibious assault troop, men who could swim with their horses, in full armor if necessary. This is where the Britons thought they were invulnerable. They thought the Romans would not be able to get across the river and effectively they were defeated in detail in a major engagement. Whilst Vespasian confronted the Britons, his amphibious troops crossed the river downstream and began to encircle the enemy. This was his first enemy engagement as commander. He particularly distinguished himself in this battle by leading his legion across the river when the tide was probably low and establishing a fortified bridgehead on the other side, effectively destroying the Britons' position and outflanking them. With masterly timing, he launched simultaneous attacks from front and rear. Vespasian's first blood was a military success. Vespasian's role was pivotal, swimming the river and outflanking the defenders. The Britons took big losses, and the Medway victory proved to be the key to southeastern England generally. After Medway, the route was clear all the way to the capital at Colchester. At the Thames, the Roman forces split. Three legions went north, whilst Vespasian was given sole responsibility for the southwest, to pacify the natives and secure the harbors. But between him and the sea lay some of the most formidable obstacles of the ancient world. The British hill forts were especially massive and numerous in the west, stretching in an arc from Wiltshire up to the Welsh border. Vespasian's masterstroke was to see that these citadels of soil might fall to artillery. Inside these mighty earthworks lay flimsy villages of thatch and timber. The trick would be prefabricated observation towers or high platforms, which his engineers could quickly assemble. Spotters could then see over the ramparts and direct the fire onto the houses, pounding them with stones and fire darts. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for part one of Vespasian. Tune in next week to listen to the second half. In the meantime, if you can't wait to learn more, just head to our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of documentaries you can watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. 
Let's Go Down in History together.